Hey, so what, uh, what would you consider the most essential topics um, for walking with Jesus? What would you consider, if you were going to make a top five list or top ten list, what would you put on, these are the most essential topics for walking with Jesus? Tonight, we'll talk about something that is something that Jesus talked about all the time. Something that about 25% of all of Jesus's teaching was about this topic, was about this subject. And, and he talks about it more than marriage. He talks about it more than sex. He talks about it more than heaven. He talks about it more than hell. He talks about it more than faith. He talks about it more than prayer. I mean, a lot of those things we would say, those are, those are pretty big things, right? But this is something Jesus talks about almost continually, and and really not even just Jesus, but throughout the Bible, there's over 2,300 references. I mean, some people say 3,000, I mean, to the subject that we'll talk about tonight, more than faith, more than hope, more than love. I mean, pretty big stuff. So what could be so essential to our walk with Jesus? What could be so essential to our relationship with God that it was something that really, I mean, just fills the pages of the Bible, that fills Jesus's teaching specifically? Well, it's money. And, you know, if it's your first time, we don't really talk about this all the time, but welcome. Um, I know I'm confronting every stereotype you have about church and Christians, but uh, we're talking about it because the Bible talks about it. And why do you think that that is something that fills Jesus's teaching. Why do you think that's something that so fills really cover to cover the Bible's teaching on finances and generosity and giving? I mean, all those things. Why is that something that is so important? The Bible, Jesus paints this picture that it is something so intimately connected with our relationship with God. It's something so into our our attitudes and our actions with money, with giving, with generosity is so intimately connected to our relationship with God. Here's one of the ways that Jesus says this. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, that's really kind of lying in the sand language, right? I mean, Jesus sets this up as our number one competitor to relationship with God is money. The number one competitor, the thing that most could take our affections away from God, that most could become something that we serve, that we love, that is our master, is either God or money. I mean, it's pretty stark language. And it's, if we think about it, many of us have built our life around money. I mean, if you think about, and I don't know all the particulars of your life, but if you think about what school you went to, sometimes it was chosen based on, will this be able to get me a good job, which then would land me good money. I mean, think about your job. Why are you in the job you're in? Many people don't choose a job they like because they like it. They choose it because it will bring me money. There's many people today doing things that they don't want to do at all, but it will bring in good money. I mean, most of the decisions, many of the decisions that we make are built around money. I mean, it's, it's, Jesus paints this very almost harsh picture. I mean, I imagine the people listening to this and going, really? Is it that extreme? Hate the one and love the other? 
Is it really despise the one and devoted to the other? Is it really that black and white? I mean, Jesus seems to think so. It's something so fundamental to our walk with God, and yet something so fundamental, but we don't like to talk about it, right? I mean, I've been around the church for a long time, and I'll tell you this, it is easier, and I'll just specifically for a group of guys, it's easier with a group of guys to sit down and talk about, hey, do you struggle with lust, and how's your purity going, and it's easier for people to talk about that, it's easier for people to talk about their sex struggles than it is for people to talk about, hey, what's your money, what's your spending like? How much did you give this year? I mean, that, that would seem, are you kidding me? Don't ask me those questions. I mean, it's a very private thing. It's a very thing. But what does that show? Does that show an attitude of despising? Or does that show an attitude of guarding really near and dear to our hearts? I mean, think about it. Just think about it. I mean, the fact that we're open with other things, that we talk about other things... But this is something along with, you know, politics, religion, you know, don't talk about these at the dinner table, money. That doesn't show an attitude of despising and hating, but it shows an attitude of guarding really close, right? Something very fundamental that Jesus says is absolutely essential to our walk with God, that the Bible paints as a picture of absolutely essential to our, I mean, It's amazing how much the Bible talks about money. And you might even be uncomfortable right now. You might be uncomfortable because we're talking about money and that's not something people get excited about talking about. People want to talk about other things, but not money. But here's just what I want to ask you. If you're you're a Christian, and if you're not, just bear with me. I'm sorry to confirm your stereotypes. Let's get coffee and talk about other things. But if you're a Christian... Wouldn't you want to know, what does God say about money? If you're a Christian and Jesus connects this so intimately to our relationship with God, I mean, Jesus connects, I mean, just if you're a Christian and you have a relationship with God and Jesus says, this is something so vital to your relationship with God. I I mean, I, I just believe that even if you're uncomfortable right now, that the Holy Spirit inside of you, if, you're, if you belong to him, there's a part of you that really wants to know, okay, so what does God say about my money? If, if it's so connected to our relationship with him, what does God say? I've got to believe that if you belong to him, even if there's some uncomfortability, that there's a part in your heart that says, I want to know. And so that's why we'll talk about it tonight, because I know you want to know, because you belong to Jesus if you're a Christian. And so tonight, we're going to look at the last section in Philippians, and we'll get a glimpse of this church. We'll get a glimpse of how they dealt with their money. And it's something that Paul honors them for. It's something that is commendable, that Paul looks at and says, man, this is, this is how you do it. And he was singing that song, too. He was, this is how... Okay, so Paul, Paul says, this is how it goes, Okay. This is how you use your money. And so we'll get a glimpse of what that looks like from this church. But then I'm really just going to use that as a jumping off point because it's not something that's talked about a lot of what is a theology of money? What does God think about our money? And so tonight will be a little bit more like a 
class lecture in some ways, because I'm just going to cover a systematic theology of money, of giving, and use Philippians here as a snapshot of, okay, here's what a church looks like that does that. So what does the Bible say? How does a church get to the place that they were at? So let's read what Paul says in Philippians here. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and some of this we covered last week, but I'll just, it's just the full context here. So I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is what we talked about last week. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. Okay, that's what we talked about last week. And then he says this, even though, even though all that's true, even though, man, I can be content whether it's great or bad, even though all that's true, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that's when he brought the gospel to them, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So something's going well with this church. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So even when he was starting another church, they were still supporting him, still helping him. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, so what was going on with this church? That's a very healthy picture of a church and how they view money and how they view giving. What was, what was going on with them? What, what was at work in them? What kind of a theology, what kind of a paradigm, what kind of a worldview led to the generosity that is being talked about here? What, what happened with them? Because we should ask that question. Paul paints a very healthy picture with their relationship to God and their relationship to money. So what kind of a view of money leads a church to be like this? That's an important question, right? So here's what we'll do. We'll cover four principles that the Bible lays out. And this is not the final word on money. I mean, there's a lot. We could talk hours. I mean, I told you, 25% of what Jesus talks about has to do with our money and our finances and our possessions and all of that stuff. But we'll, we'll give kind of an overarching framework and then deal with some of the most common questions that come from these principles. So here's the first thing. Principle number one is this. Money shows our love. Jesus says this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Most of you, I'm sure if you've been in church for um, a while, have heard that phrase before. Money shows what we treasure. It shows what we love. It's a heart issue. It's not this kind of separate thing. Okay, here's spirituality, and then here's my finances. It's a heart issue. It's a love issue. And here's, here's, here's money. 
Money is just paper and coins, right? I mean, in some sense, it's nothing. Just paper and coins. But what is money? It's value. We, we say a $1 bill has a certain assignment of value to it, and we exchange it for value. And so things that we value and things that our culture values have certain value assignments to them. So what do you value? If you value entertainment, then you use money as an exchange of value to receive entertainment. If you value, and this is really common in um, engagement season, if you value your fiance, you put a rock on her finger and that shows value. You assign, you give money towards that, not because paper equals diamond, but because it's an exchange of value. If you value security, then you spend money to have a you know, car alarm or a burglar system or a nice neighborhood or bars on the windows or whatever it is, or mace or whatever you need. I mean, money is an exchange of value. So it shows I value this, and so I use this value currency to purchase it. Does that make sense? So what that means then, and we, what we have to bring to the surface, is that if money is an exchange of value, whatever we put our money into shows where our heart is. Whatever we put our treasure into shows what we truly love, what we truly value. And I think... This is interesting because many people would agree with Jesus' statement that we looked at earlier, that you can't serve two masters, it's either God or money. Many people would agree with this statement. And here's what's interesting, though. Almost nobody, almost anybody, nobody thinks that they are materialistic. Nobody thinks their God is money. And if we did a show of hands and said, raise your hand if your God is money, I mean, nobody would raise their hand, right? But why does Jesus say this is such a huge issue? Why would he go at great lengths all the time to talk about this if nobody dealt with it? I mean, it'd be like if every single Sunday I got up and said, guys, don't murder. I'm telling you. And you're like, I don't think we struggle with that. Why do you keep preaching about that? I mean, Jesus talks about this frequently. The Bible talks about it frequently. And we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, of course. I don't deal with that. So what that means then is if Jesus seems, man, it's something that's really important. It's God or money. It's hate or love. It's devoted or service. If Jesus talks about it all the time, if the Bible talks about it all the time, then that means Jesus is probably more insightful than we are and that he sees we're blind. He sees that there's a lot of spots, a lot of areas of blindness that we go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I hear you, but no, I'm good. But here's what's interesting. Jesus actually gives us a very easy test. It's actually very quantifiable. There's a lot of things that we can't quantify. Your faith, I mean, a lot of things, your hope. But Jesus gives us a very quantifiable test. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's pretty simple. If Jesus were to sit down and look through your bank account, what would he say after giving this sermon? What would he say your treasure is? I mean, it's, it's, it's really straightforward. I mean, it just is. 
where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if you want to know where your treasure, you want to know where your heart is, you want to know what you love, flip through your bank account, flip through your credit card statement. I mean, it's, it's, it's not me, it's Jesus, right? Principle number two, all money belongs to God. So here's what the Bible said. I mean, really, everything belongs to God. This is um, the first verse. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So that's everything, the world and everybody in the world and the earth and everything. So that's everything. Everything belongs to God. And then specifically, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And the visas and the MasterCards and all of them. And then third says this, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So what that is saying is this, every single cent that we have belongs to God. Well, I worked for it. I earned it. Remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I mean, this is the refrain throughout scripture. So it's not, it's not even, you can't say, well, okay, all the money is God's that he threw on my lap. No, everything in the world is God's. All the money is God's. And even the hard-earned, hard-worked-for money that you put blood, sweat, and tears into, God gave you the very breath in your lungs to be able to do that. He gave you the ability. He gave you the gifts. He gave you the skills. He gave you the parents that raised you with the the work ethic. I mean, he, he did all of it. Everything belongs to God. Third, we're stewards of God's money. First Corinthians says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And steward means an investor. It's someone that doesn't belong to them. It belongs to someone else and they're using it for his purposes. Luke 16, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So he's talking about money here. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? So he's talking about our wealth and our riches. And he says, it's another's, it's God's. Matthew 25, this is just the the kind of intro part of this parable, the parable of the talents, which is this long story where um, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He says, the kingdom of God is like this master that gave his money. That's what a talent is. And that's another word for money in that time. He gave them money and told them to go invest it. And then he would come back. And three of them invested it wisely or two of them. I can't remember. But the, the fourth one or third one, he invests it poorly. He just goes and buries it. But the whole intro paragraph, the whole intro sentence is this. It will be like a man. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So the point of all this is this. It's not ours. It belongs to God. That's principle number two. It belongs to him, but we have some, right? I mean, it all belongs to him, but he's not just keeping it in first bank of God. He's given it to us. He's entrusted it to us. He's given it to us as stewards. It's his property, but it's in our hands. It's his property, but it's in our hands. I mean, think about it like this. If you, if you have a 401k or if you've ever done any sort of financial investing, that money belongs to you. But you give it to somebody else to manage for you, to do what you want them to do with it. 
to do according to your will and your purposes and your values and your ideas. It's not, so God is not a financial consultant. Here's the difference. A financial consultant would be someone that you meet with and say, hey, give me some advice on how I should use my money. Rather, God's the owner and it belongs to him and he's giving some to us to invest. Those are very different ways of looking. One says God kind of helps us decide how to use our money. The other says this money belongs to God and I'm supposed to use it how he wants me to use it. Very different ways of looking at things that have big implications. Fourth principle is this. Lack of giving is stealing. So in the parable of the talents, and it's Matthew 25, if you want to look at it, the end of it, the servant that didn't invest, he says, you wicked, slothful servant, depart from me. And some other harsh words for him. Malachi 3.8 says this, this is God speaking to his people. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, again, that shows our blindness. How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So see, in Malachi, God says, many people think they're not robbing God at all. And they say defensively, I've not robbed God. Are you kidding me? How have I done it? In your tithes, which is, we'll talk about that. Tithes is the allotted amount to give and contributions is above and beyond that free will offerings. So these four principles, lack of giving because God owns everything and we are his investors. If we don't give according to his will and his purposes with in line with his values, we're taking from God. It's not just greedy. It's actually robbery. It's not just materialistic. It's robbery. We're God, because God's put it in our hands. He's given it to, I mean, it'd be like, I mean, this has happened in our country, right? Big scandals, whether it's a ways back with Enron or Bernie Madoff or all these different things. It's big scandals when people give money to investors and they don't use it the way the investors would want them to. They misappropriate funds. They do things they're not supposed to. I mean, it's very, I mean, our world today takes that as a very serious crime when other people entrust their money to someone and they misuse it. It's, God takes it very seriously as well. God takes it seriously as well. We have to use the money according to his purposes because it belongs to him. So here's the thing. I remember when I first filled out a 403B to a nonprofit retirement thing. Um, and I remember the first kind of inquiry session, they ask all these different questions because they're trying to figure out how I want that money to be used. So are you risky and do you want to kind of go for it and see what happens? Are you more conservative? What do you think about technology or are you more into non-technology or what what do you want to invest in? I mean, they ask all these questions. They ask all these questions because they want to see where do I want my money going? So if we establish those four principles, that money is a love issue, that everything belongs to God, that we're his investors, and that not investing according to his will is stealing from him, that brings up a lot of questions, right? So what do we give? How do we give? What do we spend? What do we save? What do we keep? It brings up a lot of questions. So let's look at the Bible, okay? I want to walk us through the Bible's teaching 
on this. And here's the first question. How much does God want us to give? That's the most common question that people have. Let's just get down to it. How much does God want me to give? Well, here's the thing. In one sense, every single penny, right? Because all of it belongs to him. It's all God's. Every cent that you own belongs to God. And we could, I mean, this could be a sermon about not money, about other things, and every talent you have, every gift you have, every second of the day you have. So we could talk about that, but let's just focus on money. Otherwise, we'll be here for four hours, and we'll only be here tonight for three. So let's focus on money. (laughs) Um, I'm not joking. No, I'm just kidding. Um, How much does God want us to give? Every, every, all of it. But if as a husband, I said, all my time belongs to my wife, all of it, and I never spent special time with her, you would probably go, "Mm, that's not a very healthy marriage. Well, all my time is hers. And the same is true with God. Yes, all the money is God's, but God also gives us special parameters on what we do with our money. So here's the thing. Let's look at what the Old Testament says first. And I'm not going to walk you through all of the scriptures in the Old Testament because there's tons, but take a look at them. Here's a quote from a book. Um, Randy Alcorn, who is probably one of the foremost um, authors and pastors writing about all this kind of stuff. And here's what he says in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. This is a summary of the Old Testament teaching on money, okay? Of tithing. Actually, there was not just one tithe for Israelites, but three. One tithe supported the priests and Levites. That's like the pastors and the the people that conducted the religious ceremonies. Another provided for a sacred festival. And the third tithe supported orphans, widows, and the poor. The Levite and festival tithes were perpetual tithes, but the tithe for the poor was collected only every third year. This amounted to an average of 23% per year. Some say 20, some say 25, somewhere between 20 and 25. Because Israel was a nation as well as a spiritual community, some of these funds would equate to taxes that we pay today. However, the first and most basic tithe was for religious purposes, specifically to support the spiritual leaders, freeing them to fulfill God's calling and providing the necessary resources to do so. So that's a summary of what the Old Testament people were required to give. God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, were required to give about 23% of their income. That's a lot, right? About 23% of their income went to various things. And specifically, some of the things today, you know, we're not living in a theocracy where God is the, the president and all the things are governed around that, but... Some of them would equate to today's, he says. But here's the thing. What's, what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? Does the New Testament teach that? Because there's a lot of things we look at in the Old Testament. And we go, okay, the Old Testament says this, but we don't do that anymore in the New Testament. And we don't have time to get into all the different relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I'll just tell you this. Much of the things you look at in the Old Testament with Uh, let's say the temple. Why don't we worship in a temple anymore? And why not? Well, because Jesus says he's our temple. Jesus changes how we worship. Why don't we do all the sacrificial system and all that stuff in the Old Testament? Because Jesus changes how we worship. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Well, why don't we do um, all the different ceremonial cleansing things? We don't eat that. We don't touch this. Because Jesus says when he comes, he's our cleanliness. He cleans us. Okay, so there's a lot of different things you look at in the Old Testament that are changed now because we worship differently. But here's the thing, the principles never change. 
The principles never change. It isn't just we look at half of the Bible and go, okay, we throw that out. Now let's just read the New Testament. The principles never change. They, I mean, sacrifices are still in place. It's just in Jesus. The temple is still in place. It's just in Jesus. Cleanliness is still in place. It's just in Jesus. I mean, all of that remains the same. Jesus says, I don't come to abolish the law. I come to fulfill it. Okay, but still, what does that mean with tithing? Is that one of the things that changes with Jesus? Or is that not one of the things that change with Jesus? Here's what I'll tell you. I don't know. So I've studied this a lot before, Um, this sermon, and this week I've studied it tons, and I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And there's people I respect on both sides of the issue. There's people that I respect that say, yes, that carries over. There's no reason it wouldn't carry over. Of course it carries over. And then there's other people that say, no, New Testament giving is a little bit different. But here's what everybody says, whether whatever side of the issue they're on, okay? Here's what everybody says. And I'm going to give you a a sampling of about four different people, some different quotes, okay? So just hear all of this. And these are from different people. Some that say, yep, the tithe remains the same. And tithe means 10%. That's what the word literally means. Some people say, I tithe 5%. Well, that's saying like I gave 100% at 50%. It doesn't, tithe means 10%. But here's here's what these different folks say, okay? Here's what everybody agrees on. Long quote, I know. Here's what Tim Keller says, a pastor, author that um, I talk about a lot. So here's what he says. Are Christians obligated to tithe? The tithe, giving away 10% of annual income, was an obligation in the Old Testament. In Luke 11:42, Jesus tells religious leaders it is right that they tithe, but wrong that they refuse to go beyond the tithe, even when love and justice demand it. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. What does this mean? It makes no sense at all to imagine that God would have higher standards for his Old Testament people than he would his New Testament people, who have far greater privileges. Almost certainly, Christians should consider the tithe the minimum standard for their giving and should always look to go beyond the tithe if they can. It's such a privilege to invest the master's money in his causes. We should always be seeking to invest as much as possible. In summary, the tithe is not a rigid rule, but a guideline and something of a floor. If you have too many financial obligations to tithe now, then be sure you meet those obligations, arrange your life so that you can give more in the future. Don't feel too guilty. Be creative, be joyful, and itch to go over the tithe. Randy Alcorn, again, being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, the taking of oaths, and made it clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. He never lowered the bar. He always raised it. But he also empowers us by his grace to jump higher than the law demanded. To me, the question is whether God calls his new covenant people, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to give it anything less than what he demanded of the poorest Israelite who didn't know Christ's grace and didn't have the indwelling spirit. It's unthinkable to me that God had called the church to give less than he required of Israel. That goes against the grain of the entire New Testament. John Piper, to commend tithing as the ideal simply does not capture the New Testament view of discipleship. The best way that I know how to capture the spirit of the New Testament generosity is simply to say, the issue is not how much must I give, but how much dare I keep. 
Not shall I tithe, but how much of the money that I hold in trust for Christ can I take for my private use? The financial issue in the church today is not tithing, but exorbitance of lifestyle. The question is not, can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? And behind that is this question. Do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and spiritual hope in the world? Or do I prefer to embezzle his money to purchase more and more personal comfort? Sam Storms, I first ask, how much do you want to give in light of what you know about the cross of Christ, in light of what you know about saving grace and heaven and the Holy Spirit and forgiveness and the beauty of Christ, in light of what you know about the reality of hell and the fact that people without Jesus Christ are going there, how much do you want to give? If my first answer isn't adequate, I say, why don't you start with 10% and see where it might lead? There's nothing especially sacred about 10%, but I think it's a great place to begin. But Sam, I thought you said we don't have to give 10%. That's right, you don't. You actually have the tremendous privilege of giving more. So here's what all of these authors, pastors agree with. Whether they say, yes, the tithe is still standing, or no, the tithe is not still standing, they all say, as Christians, we should strive to give more than a tithe. Because we're living in the new covenant, not the old covenant. We're living under the experience of God's grace and the Holy Spirit, which people under the old covenant didn't have. So whether it's a rule or not shouldn't even be the question. The question should be, as he poses it, what we know about Jesus and his grace, and is that less or more than what's revealed in the Old Testament? So that's, I mean, as I've studied this, as I've read the Bible, I still don't know where do I land on, is it a rigid rule? But I just think it doesn't even freaking matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a rule or not. What matters is what's happening in your heart if you've been affected by those things. What's happening? So, this goes back to just the principles we mentioned. God has no problem, obviously, with giving us parameters on how much we're supposed to give. He did that in half of the Bible. Does he do that now? I don't know. But he's given us an abundance of grace now, and we should give in accordance to the abundance of grace that he's given. That's question number one. Question number two, how should I give? Here's what the Bible says. Three principles, regular, cheerful, and sacrificial. So the first one is this, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul says, do this in a regular way. This should be a regular pattern, not just some spontaneous, oh, I feel good today, or oh, there's a huge need today. It's just a regular, ongoing part of life. Second Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And what Paul's talking about here is he's taking up a special offering for some people in need. And he says, God loves a cheerful giver. As he's taking up this special offering, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. That our heart's posture shouldn't be, okay, I'll give. Fine, I'll do it. But God wants to see cheer and joy as we give. That's really interesting because a lot of times people give, even 10%, even 15%. And they do it, though, with an attitude of, I've got to pay my dues to God, and then I can get on with my life. So even if you give tons of money, this is kind of what Jesus was telling with the Pharisees. You might tithe off your spices, 
But is your heart filled with joy? God wants to see cheerfulness out of our hearts. Not just this begrudging, I'll pay my dues to the mafia and then get on with it. God will protect me if I, if I pay him. And sometimes what happens is for those that give, it creates a self-righteousness of I've given and so I'm good, I'm holy. But obviously there's much more to our holiness, much more to our relationship with God, even though money is an important part of it. But what he's saying is back to Jesus. He's going after our hearts. Is your treasure Jesus and his mission, his purposes and his values? If so, then we give cheerfully and joyfully. Third thing is sacrificial. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in their severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, so notice these people are poor, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So he says here, they gave even beyond their means. This doesn't mean they're charging up credit to give. But he's saying they're sacrificing. They're giving in a way that hampers their lifestyle. See, if you're not giving in such a way that it actually changes how you would have to live, that we can't call that giving beyond our means, giving sacrificially. I mean, that's a good question. And it's a question under sacrificial is this. Are you asking the question, how can I give more. How can I give more? How can I use more of the resources I have to invest in God's kingdom? How can I do that more? That's what these folks were doing. So how do we give regularly, cheerfully, sacrificially? Question number three, where do I give? And all the verses I just listed before, it's directed primarily to the church. Some people ask the question, well, you know, I kind of give 5% over here and 2% here and 3% there. And I mean, the New Testament vision, I mean, well, first of all, the Old Testament parameters were the money is given to the church. It's given to the Levites. It's given to those that govern God's temple in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, all the instructions are in the church. It's not just God's broader capital C church. It's directed towards the church. There isn't any sense that you get as you read through the New Testament that, hey, just give this here and give it to there and give it to there. It's, it's given to the church. Now, what about other things, though? I mean, there's all sorts of, yeah, great. And give to those, too. I mean, that's kind of what happened in the Old Testament, where it's, there's a 10% that goes to God's family, and then beyond that, there's things that went to the poor, and there's things. So, yeah, give 30% and give it all over the place. But what the New Testament shows is that primarily it begins at the church because this is God's family. That's what a church is. I mean, think about if, if you're a dad and, and you decided, you know what? I really love those kids over there. I'm going to buy them Christmas presents. Is that bad? No, that's great. Go buy them Christmas presents. But if you weren't buying Christmas presents for your family first, if you weren't putting your first fruits into your family, that doesn't make sense. And so here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, I get, and maybe even if you are, that sometimes it seems like, well, the church, that's, that's kind of a weird place to give my money. There's all these needs over here and there's needs over here. And it goes back to Jesus that what we treasure is what we put our money towards. 
And so I understand if you're not a Christian, that it, makes, it doesn't make sense to give money to the church. And I understand even if you are, that that seems odd when there's other things. But what do you value? Jesus calls the church his bride. Think about that. Jesus calls the church his bride. So it's a high value for Jesus. So the Old Testament, New Testament say we start with our family. We start with the church. And then if there's leftovers after that, if we're going above and beyond that, then more power, more power. Fourth, where does my giving go? Where does my giving go? Well, as uh, Randy Alcorn had said in the Old Testament, most of the money is given to support the religious system. Here's what the New Testament says. 1 Corinthians 9.14, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5.17-18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. He's talking in the context of finances here. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The muzzle an ox thing is when an ox is kind of helping to do work you shouldn't put something over its mouth. It should be able to eat the grain because he's doing work, so he should be able to get paid also. And then he says a quote of Jesus, the labor deserves his wages. So where does the money go? It goes towards primarily to be able to fund the labors of the gospel, but then beyond that, just the systems of the church. In the Old Testament, that would be the temple and, and all the different things that that associated with in the church. It's things today like tables and rent and TVs and I mean all the different types of just kind of functioning and operational costs. So let me just say this for those of you that are giving I mean this is this is kind of a specific it goes to those that proclaim the gospel and it goes to the ministry system but here's here's really what it goes to. It goes to the mission of God. It goes to making disciples. That's what it goes to. I mean that's what that means. It goes to the gospel getting out. It goes, to, it goes to the teaching getting out. It goes, whether that's because of a website or it's because of, um, it's because of equipment to put things on a website or it's to pay for those that do that work. I mean, it, it goes to conversations to help people's marriages be healthy. It goes, to, it goes to counseling. It goes to people suffering. It goes to community getting created. It goes to people hearing the gospel for the first time. It goes to uh, some of the stuff that we've done is, do uh, Facebook advertising to bring, some of you are here because of that, that brings people in to hear the gospel, to find community, to build relationships, to, I mean, it, all, I mean in short, a church. <laughs> That's what it goes to. All the different things it takes to create a culture where disciples are made and the gospel is proclaimed and people know and hear about Jesus in broad settings and in smaller pocket settings. It goes to the Great Commission, to start churches, to make disciples. Next question. Oh, same, that was the same question. Number five, why should I give? Why should I give? Well, I know some of it's already been in those quotes, but here's the first one. The first is just really simple. Obedience. I mean, even if you feel like, I don't want to do that. I don't understand that all. I'm uncomfortable with that. Sometimes we just do things out of obedience, even if we don't totally get it, even if we don't, we just do things out of obedience. That's the first one. But God gives us more than that. That's not all he tells us. 
Here's some different passages that explain what happens when we give. The point is this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Whoever sows, this is financially, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So whatever you give out, you get out less. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And then I'll read this last one here. Not that I seek the gift, this is from the passage we're looking at today, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. So here's some things that God tells us. Why should we give? First and foremost, it's just obedience because God says to. But here's other things that God tells us. He says this. He says that when we give, he will bless us. Now here's what this means. This does not mean if I give $5, I get $5. If I give $10, I get $100. If I give $1,000, I get $100,000. Some people teach that and that's false. That's called prosperity gospel, and it's false. It's not the gospel at all. But it's very clear throughout the Bible that when we give, God blesses us. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, it can mean a variety of things. This one is really interesting. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So that says God blesses you when you give. Why? So you can give more. Sometimes people treat it as, okay, if I give then God will have to give me money. And people teach this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God's going to bless you. He's going to give you money if you give. Why? So you can give more. Wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. But it is fair if, if part of the blessing is the joy of being a part of what God is doing. That's what Paul talks about. Paul says, look, I'm not really, I'm not after your money. I'm after the fruit that increases to your credit that when you give and you're a part of what God's doing, there's a joy in your heart that gets created. And so that's a blessing in and of itself. Paul calls it partnership. I mean, think about that part of why do we give? It's because we actually then partner with what God is doing. You're not standing up here preaching. I am. But you are partnering in this if you financially make it possible. You're not paying the rent on this building. The church is, but we partner to make these things happen, which then go, man, I, I then get a joy from that because I'm a part of this. I'm, I'm actually involved in it. That's what Paul says. You've partnered with me in these things. So we give out of obedience. We give because God says he will bless us, not just tit for tat exchange. We give because the Bible, te- I mean, I don't know what all this means, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I think the fruit can mean the results that come from it. I think it can mean rewards that we get in heaven. That's a whole nother conversation. But the Bible teaches that the good things we do don't save us, but we do get rewarded for them. Whatever that means, it might just mean the greater joy of knowing we were a part of it. It might mean a sweet house. I mean, I don't know what it means Totally but it's in there. It says it over and over again. So it means some of these things, the partnership, the joy, the reward. Um, Why else should we give? God says that he will provide for us. My God will supply every need of yours. Sometimes we don't give because we're afraid. What will happen? Will I have enough money? 
He says, when we give, we have enough. One story with this that has always stood out to me in my life, when I was a kid, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, it's at this big Christian conference thing and thousands and thousands of people there and some speaker got up and was talking about a special cause that they were trying to raise money for. I don't even remember what it was. Some special cause. Might have been Wells or something, okay? And I had, my mom had given me $10 for lunch that day. And they said, hey, we're going to take a special offering for, um, for this cause. And they're passing the baskets around. And I felt really clearly in my spirit that God was saying, you need to give that money. And I was like, wait, I'm, I mean, I get hangry, okay? I've got metabolism issues. I've got all sorts of, my wife will attest to this. Can I get an amen? And um, I mean, I, if I get, so I was, uh, I don't know about that, God. And you know what? The basket came and I kept it. I needed lunch and I was hungry. And here's what happened next. The session ended and they said, okay, so all the lunch is out there in the lobby. Got the boxes out there. I didn't know that lunch came with the, I mean, my mom or whoever paid for the, I mean, I didn't pay for the, the, my fee to get in. I didn't know lunch came with it. And I like looking for the basket. I want to give it now. You know, it's kind of too late. I mean, I probably still did, but it's kind of too late now. I had an opportunity to give. I had an opportunity to do what God said, but because of my fear, because I didn't believe that God would provide, and here's the thing, maybe lunch wouldn't have been provided, but God would still have provided for me. But he tells us, even in the context of our giving, God will supply every need of yours. God will supply every need of yours. And he tells us this, it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So in the Old Testament, they would take, and the, the Israelites, when they would go to the temple, they would have offerings of fragrance that would go up to God. And this would represent that it was pleasing to God, that God is going, oh, that smells good. So it's a fragrance offering. So this is saying, when we give, God goes, oh, that smells so good. That is pleasing to me. I mean, what do you love the smell of? Sarah and I used to live right next to a donut, like this, literally, donut store. That much space between our walls. And they'd make them all night long, 24 hours of bliss. And I ate a donut literally every day for like a month. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And it was amazing. And I loved that. I mean, we could smell it and it smelled pleasing and acceptable. That's what God is saying about our giving. That he smells it and goes, oh, it smells like donuts. Mm. I mean, that's, that's what it's saying. The Bible all the time uses physical metaphors to help us understand what things are like. So why do we give? Because it's obedience, because God blesses, because God will provide for us, because it pleases God, it smells good to God. I don't know if you need more reasons, but there's some of them. Next question, what if I cannot afford to give? That's a good question. But we need to dig underneath the surface. What does that really mean? What does it mean that I can't afford to give? Because here's the thing. If today or tomorrow, tomorrow you went into work and they told you, hey, I'm sorry. We have to cut your salary by 10%. Would that mean that you would literally cease living? Or would it mean that you would have to change your standard of living? 
So when we say I can't afford to give, we usually mean I can't afford to give with changing anything that I want to change. I can't afford to give without sacrificing. I can't afford to give without changing my standard. We don't mean I would literally drop dead. I mean, one of the churches we looked at, Paul said they gave in their poverty. We have to ask that question. What does that really mean that I can't afford to give? And what if you're in debt? Well, that's a good question. And if you are, and that's an inhibitor for you, I'd, I'd love to talk with you more about that. But what I would say is this. What's your first priority? Because even people in debt still do other things. I've heard about somebody that was in debt that fasted one meal every day. That way they could still give to their first priority, God, instead of making their first priority their debt collectors. What's your first priority? And here's, here's what usually happens. The Bible teaches a principle called first fruits, which means we give the very, it means our first priority is God. So when the money comes in, before we pay the government, before we pay our debtors, before we pay our Netflix, before we pay our internet, before we pay our et cetera, et cetera, our gym membership, before we pay all the other things we've built in our life, we give our first fruits. So in the Old Testament, that was 23% to God. Most of us operate on a leftover basis, which is I live my life and I add things into it. I build things into it, vacations, savings, 401k, retirement, taxes, dates, Netflix, internet, electricity. I build all these things into it first and then whatever's left over, I'll do extra with. Okay, but what do you ever have left over? (laughs) I mean, are you someone that gets to the end of every month and goes, man, I got a lot left over. What am I going to do with this? If you are, I'd love to talk with you. (laughs) But I mean, nobody is like that, right? So we need to build a budget that's based on our first priority. That's based on giving the principle of first fruits to God. And then following that, we build the rest of our life around that. If not, I'm just asking, what's your first priority? Are you building your life around a first priority as God or around other things as your treasure? Okay. So what if you can't afford to give? I would say, think about what that really means. And that God will provide you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. Next, how much should I keep after I tithe? So what everybody agrees on that we read earlier was, hey, whether they think tithe is the established, always do this, or from the Old Testament transfers straight to the New Testament or not, they all said, man, give above, give beyond a tithe. Let the tithe be a floor that you start at, not a roof that contains it. That's what New Testament grace leads us to think about. But what, how much should I keep after I tithe? So maybe you tithe. Maybe you give 10% of your money and then you wonder, okay, well, how much do I keep now? How much do I keep after I've given 10%? What do I do at that point? Well, that's a really good question. And I think you should struggle with that. And I struggle with it because percentage-wise, I mean, we are filthy rich in this country, every single one of us. And so how can we justify buying this shirt? I could stand out up here with a, just a t-shirt. 
How can we justify shoes? I could just wear socks. How can we justify? I mean, I think it's a question we should struggle with. So I don't think there's an easy answer. But I think we should, I think if we are thinking about generosity based on God's free grace to us and how that should change our heart and overflow, we should be struggling with how much of this do I keep? After I've tithed, after I've given what God says, how much more should I give? How much, how much do I keep for me? I think we should struggle with that. And I don't know, I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but I think it's something we should struggle with. And if you're not, that says that you're operating on just, okay, I give God my minimum stuff and then move on with my life. This should be something you wrestle with. And it's going to be different for every person, but it should be something that you wrestle with because money binds our hearts to this world. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you cannot serve. I mean, let me ask, do you despise money? Jesus says you cannot, you will either love one and despise the other or you will hate one and love the other. Do you despise money? I mean, that's a hard question, right? Are you living like you despise money? It's a hard question. So how much should you keep after you tithe? I don't know, but it's something to wrestle with. Here's a quote from Tim Keller. Here's some help, I think. Is it possible, though, for a Christian to give away too much? Yes. If we can go beyond the tithe, so he's saying start a tithe, and then if you can go beyond that without hurting your health, so you're not saying, I'm not going to eat for two months without becoming a burden to others. I gave away all my money. Can I sleep on your couch? Without reneging on our financial obligations, so we don't all of a sudden give all of our money and go, well, hey, I gave it all. I can't pay my bills because I gave it. I can't pay my taxes because I gave it all to Jesus. Without undermining our ability to live and minister among those with whom we work. And this is interesting. What Tim Keller is saying here is we're all called to be missionaries. And if you make $500,000, I don't think anyone here makes that. If you make $500,000, then you should be keeping enough of that that doesn't undermine your ability to live and minister because he's thinking, what does a missionary do among the people in that sphere? See, it would be a sad thing if every Christian that made $100,000, $500,000 gave away all of their money such that they wouldn't be able to be missionaries to the other people that make $100,000 and $500,000. But see, that's a missional that's, a, that's coming from a different stand. That's not just coming, oh, sweet, so I get to keep more? It's coming from be a missionary and keep as much as you need to be a missionary. Then, so after all those things are met, then we should give sacrificially beyond the tithe. So I mean, he doesn't give us an easy answer, but I think those are some parameters to help us think about it. And for some of you, you're not even in this boat. You're not even thinking about that at all. But for those of you that, that give, that tithe, and are still kind of struggling, how much more should I give? And this would be not how much more do you give necessarily to the church, but this is then those things that go above and beyond to other things and other good ministries and other good places. Think about those parameters. Okay, we've got two more and then we're done. What if I'm not joyful when I give? Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. What if, uh, let me actually go back just really quick. On this also, I want to say two really important things. Sometimes what happens is we get into a comparison game. So we say, well, I, look, I mean, I don't drive that kind of car. I mean, do you think it's a sin for a Christian to have a $60,000 car? 
I don't. Depending on what they're giving and depending on how much they make, if that person makes a couple hundred K and they're giving 10% and above and beyond and they've got enough money to buy that, okay, great. But wait a minute, I can't afford that. That's not right. You should, okay, but again, let's not get into a comparison game because the person over in India would look at you and think you were a freaking millionaire. So it's all just relative, right? But that's why I think it's good to have a starting floor to then work through parameters and then with a missionary mindset, then to structure our income. Okay, so that's one thing on the comparison. I wanted to say that. And the other thing is this. Because of that, God gives us, the Bible says, everything to enjoy. So is it wrong to go out to a nice meal and eat a nice steak? Is it wrong to buy a nice bike? Is it wrong to buy skis and go ski? No. God gives us things to enjoy because he loves us and he cares for us. But we can't use that to then go, okay, well, sweet. So I want to enjoy all these things because that counters everything else the Bible teaches But the Bible does teach that God gives us things to enjoy. We can go, man, I want to enjoy something and receive it as a good gift from God and praise him for it. Okay. What if I'm not joyful when I give? So because some of you hearing all this, you're probably like, you know what? That doesn't make me joyful. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. It sounds like the Bible's filled with all this. It's wonderful. It's great. It's a fragrant offering. It smells good to God. It smells like crap to me. I'm not joyful. Or maybe you're just apathetic. Maybe, okay, I'll give it. It's not a huge burden. It doesn't horribly suck, but, you know, just whatever. What do you do if you're not joyful? What do you do if in your heart there isn't this joy to give that Paul describes is happening in the Philippian church? What do you do? Well, let me read you a quote from Facebook where all good things come from. Um, my sister-in-law... Um, my has she my I have a little nephew okay he's almost four and he says the funniest things in the world and she always posts them on her Facebook account and his name is Rockstead or Rock we call him and here's something that happened true story and I just think it really illustrates our hearts because children are honest so here's what happened I'll just read it to you this is her talking I asked Rock how could I pray for him tonight and he asked me to pray that we wouldn't give any more of his toys away We've been doing lots of organizing, donating lately. I told him instead, I'd pray for his heart about it. So she starts to pray. Jesus, please help Rock to have a joyful heart when we give our things to others. He interrupted me. Nope, don't do it, Jesus. I don't want that help. (laughs) I continued, and please help remind Rockstead that he has an abundance of blessings. Again, interrupted. Don't remind me. I don't want to remember that, Jesus. I want to keep all my things forever. (laughs) that's our heart. I mean, that might be our heart in this sermon right now. Don't remind me, Jesus. Don't remind me. I want to keep all my things forever. Don't do that. I don't want that help. I mean, the question is, the the question is, what if I'm not joyful? I don't care. I don't want help to be joyful. If I'm joyful in it, then that means I'm going to want to give it. I don't want to be joyful. Don't do that, Jesus. I mean, hilarious, but I mean, that's, that little kid's going to be 25 and 30 one day. And apart from the work of grace in his heart, that's the same heart that we carry around, right? It's the same heart that we carry around. What if you're not joyful? Well, I'll tell you this. Ask God to free your heart from the love of the things in this world. 
Ask God to free your heart. Pray without interrupting yourself and pray that God frees your heart from the love of this world. Do you despise money? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. If you're, not, if you're not joyful and it prevents you from giving, if you're not joyful and you give but begrudgingly, if you're not joyful and you give but apathetically, ask God to free your heart from the love of this world. Ask him to free your heart from the things in this world that grip, that have become God. Ask him to do that. And secondly, look at Jesus. Paul, or Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. What it means is you don't treasure Jesus. Look at him. Get to know him. Spend time with him. And then have your heart changed because you begin to treasure him. You know, what's interesting is that um, what the phrase that Jesus says is, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And what that means is we can look at the money and we see where our heart is, but it also means something else. It means whatever we give to, where our treasure goes, our heart follows it. And you know this. If you've ever given money to something, you then start to care about it, right? If you've ever invested in something, um, I remember the first time I ever invested in a stock. I don't care about the company, but I put money into it. So now I cared about it, reading the news on it, looking at things. I mean, because whatever you put money into, you actually start to care about more. Wherever your treasure goes, your heart follows along. So ask Jesus to free your heart from the love of the things in this world. Start to look at Jesus and be filled with joy in him. And then third is this, just give. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver, which sometimes we look at and go, okay, well then when I'm cheerful, I'll give. That's not what he says. He says God loves a cheerful giver, but that doesn't mean, so therefore don't give until you're, I mean, God loves a cheerful parent also. But if that meant, well, until you're cheerful, don't, you know, then you change the diapers. God loves a cheerful employee also, but that doesn't mean, well, if you're not happy in your job, just do a bad job. God loves cheerful everything, but sometimes the way that we're cheerful is through being obedient and giving. That's the treasure follows the heart. The heart follows the treasure, rather. Okay, last thing. Where do I get the motivation to give? Where do I get the motivation to give? God's grace makes us want to give. Here's what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, this is, I mean, you might recognize that reference because it's been in a lot of them because those chapters, Paul talks a lot about money and tithing. And so he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then here in Philippians, our text for today, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, give, 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 give. He's saying, I want you to see Jesus. 
I want you to see the grace that Jesus was rich. Now, that, I mean, that's hard for us to put our minds around. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2 also, that he had everything. And then he emptied himself and became nothing. He was king and God, and then he emptied himself and went to a cross and became a servant. That he was rich, but for what? For our sake, he became poor. So here's the gospel. The gospel is that God himself comes down to us when we are enemies, when we are sinners. That God himself had everything and became a little baby, became a man. Went to the cross, was betrayed, was rejected, lived a humble life. Why? He had it all and he gave it all for us. And Paul says, look at that. Let that work itself into your heart. You know the story of uh, Dickens, um, Scrooge, Christmas Carol? I'm most familiar with the Disney version, Scrooge McDuck, Mickey's Christmas Carol. But if you know the story... What happens to him? He's this stingy old miser that stacks his money, doesn't share. And what happens? Something changes him. He gets grace. He gets a picture of what his life would be like. And then he gets a second chance. And that grace, that second chance, changes his heart. And he goes out and he starts giving money and says Merry Christmas and gives to the poor and gives, I don't know if he gives to his church, but he should have, but he goes out and he does all these things because grace changed him because he was saved. He was in dire condition and then he got this chance of grace to restart all over again. That's what Jesus did to us. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look what he did. Not to guilt us, but to say, look at Jesus. Look what he's done. To the degree that you feel that in your heart is to the degree we respond out of that. That's why the Old Testament, New Testament thing doesn't matter because we have this fullness of grace that we've received now. And how do we respond out of that? To the degree you get that, that you see what Jesus has done for you, to the degree you see the glory in Christ Jesus, then you want to share and you want to respond out of that. And so that's my commendation to you. What does your money show about what you love? What needs to change? What do you need to confess to God? I need to confess for going too long in my sermon, but what do you need to confess to God? (laughs) I maybe need to confess to some of you also, but important topic. If your heart has seen the gospel, is that flowing out of you?